Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Gary Trust, Billboard's co-director of charts. And hey guys, it's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. This is where we look at why what's on the charts is on the charts here in our New York office. And uh, you know, before we get to what we're going to talk about this week, let's mention this is our 98th episode, including 40 or so that I did solo before you joined, Trevor, before I had to share the profits with anyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're missing those checks because... Are they big? I am missing the checks. That is that is a true statement. Uh, so uh, we're trying to think of uh, who'd be a great guest for a hundredth episode uh, coming up, and uh, I think we came up with the best guest we will have ever had on the podcast for our uh, coming up one hundredth episode. Should we say who it is? The listener, you. The listener is going to be the guest. The, the one listener out there. <laughs> Hopefully more than one. Uh, what we've done, we've uh, created, uh, I'll call it a Charpie Podcast Hotline. It's uh, brand new as of this week. We're, uh, we'd love for you to call, leave comments, uh, chart observations, and most of all, chart questions uh, that we can play back and answer, respond to uh, here on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, as of our 100th episode, you are co-hosting the podcast with us. Uh, so here's the number. Uh, 212-493-493. 4021 which I love because it's it's like 40 to 1 4021 I wonder like I'm very curious how many people like have to now have figure out some way to like pause their cell phone to go type this number in somewhere the second I said it because yeah because like I'm sure I, I don't know I imagine most people might listen to this on their cell phone so right. now you're well take a take a break switch switch apps and we'll be right here all right yeah 212 uh, 493 40 to 1. I like that. 40. It's like a pun with numbers. 40 to 1, like a countdown. And the man has never met a pun uh, he uh, did not enjoy. So, uh, 212 493 40 to 1 is uh, the new uh, Billboard Chartbeat podcast hotline. Uh, just the cost of a call to New York. It's a 212 number, and uh, you will be recorded uh, and, uh, for possible use here on the podcast. So, we're looking forward to it. Give us some good uh, questions, comments. Uh, tell us what you want to hear uh, on the podcast going forward. What we're bad at, we'll, we'll take that too. We'll take uh, all kinds of criticism, critiques. We, we can handle it. The critique may not make it on the air, it may not. just for the record, but it will, of course, be reviewed by, by us, and maybe we'll adjust based on your feedback. And uh, yeah, if this works, uh, we'll use it in other episodes too. So we look forward to hearing from you, uh, chart fans, uh, all over. So 212 493 
4021. Uh, give us a call, and uh, you might be on the podcast with us uh, going forward. So uh, this week, uh, our special guest is Victor Lukerson, staff writer at The Ringer, uh, Bill Simmons' website. We will talk uh, Boston sports, if you know who Bill Simmons is, uh, coming up. But uh, Victor has written a lot uh, about Drake and how and why he's dominating so much. Uh, Victor's been writing about Drake and streaming uh, for, for a while at The Ringer. So uh, we'll get his take uh, coming up. Uh, kind of nice to, to get a take from someone who covers the industry, but not specifically from a charts perspective like we do. So maybe you'll see things uh, that we don't uh, see uh, looking uh, from, from a chart angle. So uh, he calls it the Drake over, which I like. So uh, Victor is coming up. Uh, as always, let's get into the top 10 of this week's Billboard Hot 100. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Number 10. All right, hope you're a fan of Drake because you are getting, once again, a double dose at the top of the charts this week. Number one, once again, on the Hot 100 and number two with Nice For What and God's Plan. So a double scoop of Drake on your Hot 100 Sunday. Uh, Last week, obviously, Nice For What. Finally, the song that could knock God's Plan off the top. Uh, Many challenges have come and gone. We had... Uh, Psycho, Post Malone, we'd had Finesse get close to the top region, we had Meant to Be, BB Rexa, Florida Georgia Line, none of them could do it, it took another Drake track. So uh, yeah, once again, number one and number two. 
So what, what I find interesting, or at least one of the interesting things this week, is uh, so the song debuted at number one last week, became the 30th song ever in the Hot 100's history to debut at number one. And I got curious how many of those songs have held at number one for a second week. Is it uh, songs just debut because there's so much uh, anticipation for them, but then second week there's a drop-off, that, that's natural. So uh, was it most songs that fall off? Do most songs, uh, if you debut that high, you, you have so much momentum behind you that you are going to stay at number one? So uh, I looked at all of them, uh, total even split, 15 of the 30 songs that have debuted at number one have held for a second week. So we're talking 15 songs in the entire Hot 100's history that have debuted at number one and stayed there uh, for a second week. And uh, even more interesting, so Drake has now done that with back-to-back hits. Uh, God's planned first 11 weeks at number one. Nice for what? Uh, so far, it's first two weeks at number one. Uh, There's only one other artist who's ever had back-to-back hits debut at number one, back-to-back, and stay at number one for multiple weeks. And that was Mariah Carey in 1995 with these two songs. with uh, Fantasy and One Sweet Day back in 1995. Uh, Fantasy was number one for its first eight weeks. Uh, Whitney had a week at number one uh, after that with Exile. And then uh, One Sweet Day, Mariah and Boys to Men, it's for 16 weeks at number one. So you're talking two artists ever in the Hot 100's history have debuted at number one uh, with two singles, and they've both stayed at number one for multiple weeks. Uh, funny you mentioned that, because we actually uh, will return to Mariah in this exact era uh, Mariah Carey and those hits uh, coming up later. So if you're a fan of Mariah or you're a fan of quirky chart stats involving the number one position, uh, stay tuned because we'll have a lot more coming your way. And there's one song uh, in that list of songs that stayed at number one for two weeks that actually surprised me. Looking back, uh, you remember in the in the mid-2000s, uh, for four straight years, someone would win American Idol and they'd debut at number one, uh, Clay Aiken, Fantasia, Carrie Underwood and Taylor Hicks. I, I was kind of surprised looking back. I didn't really remember. Clay Aiken stayed at number one for two weeks with This Is The Night, the first uh, Idol winner to debut at number one. The show was so huge at that point, its second season, that uh, he was able to get two weeks at number one. Yeah, and that was around the time, you know, 50 Cent had just had uh, massive hits, 21 Questions had just been knocked out at the number one spot by Clay Aiken. Beyonce was on her way up with Crazy In Love. So, uh, you know, the fact that Clay was able to get a, a two weeks of and really two weeks of sales um, in particular really helping out. I mean, that's, you know, super impressive. Also, some interesting things happening at the back end of the top 10 this week. Uh, not just Drake, but another member of the Young Money crew. We're talking Nicki Minaj, whose Chun-Li makes a huge jump, 92 to 10, uh, after its first full week. Remember, it came out uh, in the middle of the last tracking week, which gave it a little bit of sales and streams, enough to get on the chart last week at 92. Now that she's had seven whole days, Chun-Li jumping up to number 10, her 16th top 10 hit, which uh, I'm sure as you guys know by now is the most among female rappers. Missy Elliott back there, second place with nine Uh, Now, you've got a lot of people obviously going to have another female rapper on their radar, maybe to pass Missy. 
maybe even as soon as this year. Cardi B is racking up top tens yeah. at an impressive rate. And Cardi, of course, once again in the top ten this week, right above Nicki at number nine with the song I Like It with Bad Bunny, Jay Balvin. And as plenty of people on our Periscope this week kind of noted, you know, would have Nicki and Cardi in adjacent positions, uh, both in the top ten, both female rappers. It's got to be something you don't see very often in Hot 100 history. Right. So we took on that challenge from Periscope to find the last time that female rappers were in adjacent positions in the top 10 on the Hot 100 last came uh, not too long ago week of December 16th so that week uh, we'll quiz Gary on this pop quiz can you name the artist who that is probably 100% going to be in December 2017 it's gonna be Cardi B Correct. It is Cardi B. Yes, Bodak Yellow that week coming in at number seven. Oh, the uh, the G Easy song. The G Easy song. The song is called No Limit. Right. No Limit was coming in at number eight that week. So Cardi B, last person to be, you know, last female rapper to be in two spots next to each other. Uh, if you want to discount that, you know, if you want two separate rappers like we have this week with Nicki and Cardi, you have to go back all the way to 2014 to find that. So 2014, talking the week of November 15th. First things first, Gary, can you name the artist? Iggy Azalea would be one of them. Okay, yeah, Iggy is one for sure. Was it Nicki back then too? And it was Nicki Minaj. Yeah. Now, like a little harder, can you name the two songs? What Iggy and Nicki songs were hot November 2014? Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in these guesses. Okay. Uh, we'll see. Uh, bang Bang, one of them, with Jesse J and Ariana Grande. Bang Bang, it was yes, that was, that was at number five. And uh, I know a lot of people, you, you think Iggy, you automatically think uh, Fancy, but maybe sort of forgotten hit. A good song at this point, the follow-up, Black Widow. Yes, Gary, look at that. I shocked you, didn't I? Uh, you, uh, you did, <laughs> actually. I thought, based on 2014, I thought a lot of people would have guessed Anaconda. It's the last, you know, sort of Nick, all Nicki hit. You kind of, you may forget that she was on Bang Bang because it wasn't, you know, it was a pop song, obviously, two other think, featured women. I think that's why I remember that one. Now, now I'm thinking I probably should have guessed Anaconda, but Bang Bang was the pop hit. That's what came to mind. Yeah, Bang Bang and Black Widow. And actually, if you go back two weeks before, uh, November 1st, 2014, uh, those same two songs, number three and four, go back, oddly enough, two more weeks, uh, and we actually had three songs next to each other, female rappers. We had uh, Black Widow, and we said Iggy with Rita Ora at number three, Bang Bang, the uh, triumvirate of Jesse J, Ariana Grande, and Nicki Minaj, number four, and Nicki's Anaconda at number five. And that was a great time for women on the charts, that stretch. And in late 2014, uh, Megan Trainor came along, Taylor came back, all these hits. There were uh, several weeks where women owned the entire top five. So uh, if yeah, nothing else, it does tend to be cyclical. Last year, we're saying it was all men. So uh, yeah, historically, it's coming waves. Yeah, and if you want to add sort of one more point to that and how big the women were in that uh, late quarter of 2014, uh, that October 18th when we had those three songs, Black Widow, Bang Bang, Anaconda, all uh, next to each other in the top five. That was actually the fifth straight week in a row that those three songs were next to each other in the top five. They shuffled some order a little bit, but it really was those three songs, uh, all about that bass. Megan Trainor was really huge at that time, and Shake It Off, and those songs were just trading out the spots. So there we go. Shout out to uh, our friend Selena, 
at Dealey Selena for that. And there you go. There's your answer. So uh, Cardi in December. And if you want to go back before that, talking November 2014. This is probably a whole other tangent, but it, it came up to me as we were looking at all this. I'll just I'll put the premise out there. Uh, Trevor, is, is, is the rapper without a featured act becoming more of a thing now? We've got Drake at numbers one and two with songs just by himself. The two Nicki songs, no features, just her. Uh, Cardi, Bodak Yellow was just her. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, newer rappers like Rich the Kid, Lil Pump, Famous Dex, uh, just coming out with songs on their own. Is, are we moving into a new era, or maybe we've kind of been in this for a while, and I, since I'm not any kind of a rap expert, maybe I haven't uh, noticed as much. But uh, in this new era of uh, you know, sort of this low-key rap where artists are, are kind of singing, kind of rapping, maybe they don't need a, a featured singer to come in and, and sing a hook? Maybe, may, I mean, maybe. I guess I, I think of this kind of as a twofold answer. I'll say one for, for more than new kids. Um, you know, one thing we're really seeing, and I, I don't know if people pay attention to this at all, but, you know, a lot of these songs are a lot shorter yeah. than, you know, a three and a half, a 350, a four and a half minute track. I mean, some of these songs are clocking in 230, some yeah, of them right. are clocking in, you know, 212. So, you know, you don't really need. I mean, you, you really don't need a major hook to hold people for two and a half minutes. I mean, you probably, most of these songs, you know, they have a verse, maybe some sort of hook, you know, shout out some sort of change or bridge or something, another verse, and then yeah. and that's kind of it. I don't think, you know, a lot of these guys, I mean, especially the ones that are coming off SoundCloud, coming off their own sort of, you know, young crews in these cities who are not, you know, Studio Wizards and Max Martins and such. I mean, I think they just, I, th- I think, I guess they have a good, ear for when it's done you don't want to oversell it you don't want to overdo it you know I mean I think one thing that I used to hate some of those hallmarks from way back in the day and I mean like in the 70s 80s it would be like you have a 45 second intro and then you have your your verse and then you know you have the hook and then you loop the chorus three four times before you play it out and I think that sort of made people lock into this formula about, you know, well, it has to, you know, it has to repeat the chorus twice right. before the song can be over. It has to it has to have a verse, hook, verse, hook, bridge, hook, hook. You know, you can't have a hit without it. You can't have a hit without it. Why would you ever do that? Yeah. And some of these kids are saying, well, this song is done, you know, right. it's well, through. Part of it, too, is uh, a lot of those hits were made for radio and you'd want a DJ to talk over a 20 second intro. So there's 20 seconds right there. And now uh, this kind of stuff isn't necessarily being made to be played on pop radio. You can start with the hook instantly. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. Uh, my other point about that is, you know, it's funny because we say a lot of these things like don't have features, but in a way they kind of some of these kind of do. I mean, you look at Drake with Nice For What. I mean, you could argue that, you know, there could be a Drake featuring Lauryn Hill credit there, and Lauryn right. Hill does a lot of the heavy lifting on the hook. Right. Um, and even though it's just a Drake song, it's not like, it's not like Drake is doing all the work. So maybe there's that. Also, you mentioned Cardi. I mean, I know Bodak Yellow's all Cardi, but of her five top tens, four have been collaborations. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure that Cardi's going to hold water on that one. But that was the number one. And that was the debut hit that got everyone's attention. Uh, It was. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it was, but you know, she we she, she got some friends for those other ones. So the other thing mm. too, with with a song like Gucci Gang, where it's just him basically repeating Gucci Gang so much. It, I'm sorry, repeating what? It's, it's called Gucci Gang. How does it go? I could loop. We sang Gucci Gang several times in a row, like this. Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang. I can rap. 
Gary. Okay, Gary. Gary showing off some some skills today. Uh, but if you had a song like that that's so repetitive, uh, if you had five minutes of that, you might go crazy listening to that for more than two and a half minutes. Uh, or or you might or you might even get that much hyper. Who knows? Yeah. Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Uh, all right, let's uh, move on to our uh, special guest uh, this week here on the Billboard Sharpie podcast. Uh, really excited to talk to Victor Lukerson, staff writer at The Ringer. He's written a lot about Drake. Over the last couple of years or so, last year wrote a story called The Drake Over, where it's looking at Drake's career into 2020 and how he could keep releasing certain songs, albums, year by year going forward, and just see how big his domination can just keep on going. So uh, The Ringer, uh, pop culture, website, uh, sports, music, uh, Boston Connection, and Bill Simmons being uh, the creator. So I, I will get a question uh, in about that, uh, me being from Boston. So uh, we're going to talk Drake and, and more uh, right now with Victor Lukerson of The Ringer on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. And you're showing off, but it's all right. And you're showing off, but it's all right. It's a Victor Lukerson of The Ringer, staff writer. Thanks so much for coming on the Billboard Sharpie podcast. Yeah, Gary, how you doing? We're doing well. So uh, you've been writing uh, really uh, for a while now. Uh, saw the story uh, recently. Wrote about Drake uh, called uh, "Is Drake Too Big to Fail?" This is you're sort of the official Drake writer for The Ringer. Is, is that your beat officially? <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely the uh, streaming uh, writer for The Ringer, and Drake is the king of streaming. So I think that's sort of how. My interest in hip hop and my interest in streaming collided to be end up with me writing about Drake a lot, sort of fearing Drake a lot, and the dominance he's kind of taken in the music industry in the last couple of years. Well, let's get into the story uh, you did uh, last week again uh, called "Is Drake Too Big to Fail," which uh, is kind of a fun play on uh, Drake owning pop culture, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook when when that was going on. The, the hearing you're writing about that, uh, right. you, you called "Nice for What" uh, in quotes a, a preordained hit uh, in that Drake's success and his reach just, just naturally breeds more successes. Is, is that your main premise for why Drake is doing so well? That basically he's doing so well because he already has. Yeah, I think we've sort of seen an interesting transition. So, you know, Drake's been around for almost 10 years now and sort of started off in, in the time period when mixtapes were still sort of the biggest super hip-hop artist uh, to gain exposure. But in the last three or four years, we've really seen streaming take off, um, monetized streaming especially, and Drake has benefited from that transition a lot just because he was the biggest rapper in the game when this whole thing started. So now, because he's the biggest rapper, he's going to be the one getting on Playlist like rap caviar immediately. Um, he's going to be the one like leading trending topic list and that kind of thing. And when you think about the way that sort of social networks work, or even a network like Spotify works, once you're the person who's sort of like getting all that algorithmic feedback, you're going to be the one that benefit from it the most. So Drake is definitely a case of sort of like right place, right time, and he's been really savvy about always having a steady stream of new hits to ensure that no one else sort of like comes in and like unseats his dominance, basically. Okay, well, let's talk about, uh, you kind of mentioned in, in there that Drake was at the right moment, at the right time, but we've seen a lot of people, you know, um, I mean, with streaming, you can be hot one week, dead the next week, hot one album. What is Drake doing in terms of, of cultural relevance or sound that is making sure that he's staying up? Because you can't just, you know, you're not just going to be there because you are a hit maker forever. What, what is he doing 
with his new albums, different styles? What is making him hot? Yeah, I think he's just been proven to be really well-equipped to sort of incorporate new sounds into still sort of like the uh, quintessential Drake sound. So if you think about sort of like early Drake, it was all of this like really downbeat R&B style uh, influence rap where he's like sampling either R&B or sometimes like indie artists. And he's sort of like just taking that and, and instead of doing like sampling the XX or those kind of arts, he's taking now, okay, I'm going to sample like dance hall or like, you know, nice for what. He's kind of mixing different elements where he has uh, sampling Lauryn Hill's X Factor, which is like a pretty quintessential Drake move to sample a 90s R&B artist. But he's also turning it into like this bounce remix so and introduced like New Orleans elements to it. Um, he also samples the New Orleans artist uh, Big Frida, who's a prominent bounce artist in that song. So he's really good at sort of like taking just enough of different elements and putting them in his music and creating like a very palatable pop mainstream version of these various different genres. It's not really anything different uh, than maybe you know, what Michael Jackson was doing in the 80s, bridging uh, pop and R&B or rock uh, on something like Beat It. These artists that, that tend to dominate like this tend to pull in sounds from uh, different audiences and uh, you know, it helps explain the mystery of why they're just that big at that time. Yeah, it's also interesting though because I guess with somebody like Michael Jackson, he was very tied to the traditional album cycle uh, structure. So, you know, he like makes a thriller, a huge culture-consuming album, and then like tours for two or three years and comes back with, you know, bad three about three years later. Whereas with Drake, we've seen this just like steady, constant stream of music, more or less since he emerged on the scene almost 10 years ago. Um, I also think it's sort of interesting because Drake's songs are big, but they don't. I don't necessarily know the staying power they have, you know? Like if I go out, this weekend, I'm probably not going to hear Stutter from the bottom anywhere, even though that song was everywhere five years ago. So he's sort of like creating all of these hits that are almost like disposable in a way, but he has like a new hit every six months. So it doesn't really matter whether he gets tired of that one. There's going to be a new one with a fresh sound for you anyway. You, you've written a little bit about that um, and kind of arguing about, especially with, with Kanye coming out and sort of how the, you know, the GOAT conversation will change. Uh, but I'm curious, do you think, you know, is, is Drake good? Are people going to look back in 20 years, 25 years and say, oh, Drake was the guy who changed the game? Because in some ways people are arguing, you know, by having more melodic, having more, you know, different samples. Like, yes, he is changing the game in a lot of ways that, you know, a lot of other, especially Canadian kind of acts are trying to follow. But at the same time, you know, if you look at something like the Grammys count, if you look at sort of, you know, people's top five, is is Drake good? Drake is definitely good. I would say it's borderline inarguable. I think whether Drake is great is a tougher okay. a tougher sell. Right. You know, I, I, I mean, that. great. When I, when I say good, I really mean you know, great. Goat conversation, right, heaven right. status. Right. Like is 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 this like immense popularity sort of match up to his actual talent or sort of um, worthiness in the pantheon? I guess. I mean, that's kind of tough to say. I actually wrote a story last year. That's kind of similar to this uh, antitrust thing called the Drake over, and I sort of projected how he's probably going to become the best-selling rapper. Like, if he if he has a big project every year for the next two or three years, he'll probably end up, end up eclipsing Eminem, who's considered one of the best rappers, um, and by like 2020. So then the question of okay, if, if Drake is the best-selling rapper, does that make him like the best rapper? And I don't know. For me personally, I feel like because he sort of. He seems so. He seems so tied to, I guess, like right in the trends of the moment in a way that's like honestly pretty transparent. That for me, I feel like I never really learned that much about Drake's interiority, and I'm also not that curious about it. So I guess for me, like 
I have to be curious about like sort of like a rapper's creative process and what they're thinking. I think with like a Kendrick Lamar or Kanye West, they sort of you you have a much closer connection to the artists themselves. Whereas with Drake, it's more just about like he's making you these hits. So then there's just a much more commercial product feel to what he does, which I think I think for me sort of separates him from being great. For me, the only great for me the only truly great Drake project project is Take Care, and that's almost uh, ten years old at this point. So. What do you think of uh, Nice For What, God's Plan? Where, where do you put these songs in his overall catalog? I mean, Nice For What's like definitely a great beat. Like It's like a super fun song. It's going to be huge this summer. It'll be interesting to see. So he has his album Scorpion coming out in June. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether or not the song sort of like makes sense in the context of the album or this just kind of like one of these one-off hits, you know? Like, like I was saying earlier, he has become really adept at making these one-off fits that are really ubiquitous, but then don't necessarily have like a home to exist in or don't necessarily like have a context in which you're going to keep coming back to them in the future. So I think it'd be interesting to see whether or not this, this is like an indication of the sound of the album or whether they're just going to kind of like append it to the end uh, kind of arbitrarily, like with uh, Hotline Bling, which was, I think that was his biggest hit before this like recent run. He just kind of like added that to the end of views, just sort of I think to get the sh- the album sales up, the actual album numbers up. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, "Nice for What" is like actually part of the vision of this Scorpion project, or more just a one-off that he might shoehorn in there. Kind of what you're uh, saying, uh, Victor. You, you wrote last week is a story on the Ringer called uh, "Can Kanye West Disrupt Drake's Monopoly?" Kind of what you were just saying that uh, it, maybe you say uh, Drake has more casual fans, but Kanye has more super fans, but uh, Drake has just such a monopoly at this point that all those fans who, who like all these songs maybe aren't uh, is, is so deep into the lyrics. It's just they're, they're good uh, you know, summer type song. Uh, and, and that's kind of what's uh, what's doing it for him is that you, you maybe don't always need to have the super fans. If, if you're just on that level where so many people like your stuff, uh, that'll be enough for chart success. Yeah. And t- technology ben- or benefits that type of artist in a big way. Right. Um, like when, so I'm 28, and when I was a kid, and I wanted to get Kanye West's first album. I had to like convince my mom to take me to the CD store, like find fifteen dollars from now when I was 14 years old, and go through all this effort to listen to the college dropout. Right. But I can listen to Nice for What just like on Spotify. It's a, it's a click. It's a click of a button away. So there's just so little effort involved in being part of that cultural moment when everybody's talking about it on Twitter or on Facebook. That it's almost like why not listen to the song, get excited about it. And so I think again, Drake has sort of figured out how to tap into those new models for promotion and made it so like whether or not you're like a huge fan of his there's very little reason to not enjoy what he's doing so all of all of our casual interests just like aggregation and making drake this unstoppable force basically i think it's a great point because i guess we've kind of had some internal conversations around here uh because obviously drake puts up numbers that are astronomical but we're so hard-pressed to find like hardcore Drake fans like Drake has no fan army name uh, not that that's you know the end all be all but yeah there's that is a good point though there's no it's like with Drake Hive doesn't exist <laughs> no I mean there's not there's, there's no group out there but yet you, I guess the way you put it like there's enough casual interest from so many different sectors because I mean you can hear obviously obviously hip hop heads will like it but I mean you can see you know young girls who just like you know pop music who are 12 like getting into this so there's a you know it's sort of that that network where everyone's maybe 75% committed is enough to right. get those numbers up more than you know a, a small group that's 100% in yeah and he's, he's like proven to be savvy maybe even craven is the word for it in terms of like the way he like taps into new markets right so like 
Nashua White is a great example of that because he has all these really famous female celebrities in the video. So either that's like Jake is really trying to support women or Jake's just kind of like hopping on the Me Too movement. You know, it kind of depends on your perspective on the guy. He also was on Twitch a few weeks ago, the video game live streaming service, playing the new game Fortnite. And that's just a way for Jake to prove he's like still got his like nerd credentials, I guess. I just feel like he's always trying to find these ways to tap into these different markets in a way that seems to me to be like extremely transparently commercial. But then at the end of the day, his songs are so fun that there's no reason to sort of be getting up in arms about it, right? Like no one's going to stop streaming Jake for these reasons. He's probably going to stream him even more, basically. Especially now in this social media climate, uh, a lot of artists, you know, they, they get a lot of flack for being not real. I mean, people, one, I think one reason people love Rihanna so much is because she is real 24-7. She'll clown you on Instagram. She's not, you know, a calculated sort of clean figure. Do you think that, I mean, knowing what we know about Drake and, you know, he's not he's not the hardest kid on the block. He didn't grow up the poorest kid. So the fact that he's, right. you know, nerdy, the fact that he uh, maybe has a more sort of progressive mindset. Do you, th- do you think all those things are commercial or do you think those things are actual genuine? I don't know. It's kind of like I said earlier. I just spend so little time thinking about Drake's like interior thoughts. <laughs> he just totally like this vessel for hits for me. Um, so I don't know really know like what's going on or like which is the real Drake. I guess the last thing, the last time I felt like Drake was like being real Drake was probably when Take Care came out because that's a very like downtrodden it's like a very sad uh album in a very juvenile way like sad like oh i'm 22 now and i just graduated college and i'm i'm wise and i just feel like that version of drake seemed like the actual guy basically and since then he's sort of been like adopting these different personas as as the time fit him but i don't think it's like a problem that he's like uh finding these different ways to stay relevant i guess and i really don't think i already say he doesn't really have like a sort of like a to like a hardcore fan base that's like analyzing his every move or that kind of thing. So I don't really know if there's going to be anybody he could like betray by selling out or, you know, going against his own principles because he sort of doesn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Drake is Drake is just like a chameleon. But I guess, I mean, that's, I guess, one of the benefits if you don't have this sort of hardcore legion who was with you from day one, you don't you don't owe anybody anything. So maybe... maybe yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's what... One thing I think is fascinating about him, so I've seen Drake live twice, and I saw him, like, or like I guess in, like, the So Far Gone days when he was pretty new. And then I saw him again about two years ago, and when I saw him, the last time I saw him, he didn't play any songs from Before Take Care. So he didn't play, like, Best I Ever Had or, like, uh, Thank Me Later songs. But, but my point is only that, like, Drake has no, like, origin story song, so, like, if you go see Kanye West in concert, he's always going to play All Falls Down, because that song is very, like, instrumental to, like, the legend of Kanye West. But Drake just sort of, like, Drake's, all, the, the only version of Drake that really matters is the newest version of Drake. And so I think it's interesting that he's this humongous artist, but he doesn't really necessarily have the same sort of, like, story arc or mythology that you see among a lot of sort of the all-time great artists, basically. So so when you were there, because I, I can only, I haven't seen Kanye, but I can imagine, like, especially if he's in Chicago, you know, All Falls Down starts, I'm sure they go wild. Is there any song that you remember from that Drake show where, like, people felt like, oh, yeah, this is the one, like, this is, this is the Drake I want to see? I mean, honestly, it was, I really felt like it was the songs that were the most current. So this was when... If you're reading this, if you're reading this, is too late. It just come out. So when he played like Legend and Energy, um, 
and like those songs from that from that mixtape, I thought those were the ones. I guess the closest thing he asked, what I would consider to be like a signature song, might be the motto from Take Care. That's okay. where we get the word yellow from. And I feel like that's also the only like old Drake song I still might hear when I'm like out sometimes. Yeah. So I feel like if, if there is like a signature Drake song, I'd, I'd probably say it's that one. Now she want a photo. You already know though. You only live once. That's the motto, nigga. Yolo, and we bout it every day, every day, every day. Like we sitting on the bench, nigga. We don't really play every day, every day. Fuck with anybody say. Can't see him because the money in the That's an interesting real. point. Uh, I'm thinking about other artists who've sort of reinvented themselves like that. You know, Drake is, it's about nine years into his career at this point. Uh, we saw Taylor right. switch from country to pop. We saw Bieber. You know, you don't think of Justin Bieber now as, as the artist who did Baby and some of those first hits. You think of his newer stuff, and, and now Drake same kind of a thing he's hitting these new heights you know about a decade into his career is i'm not sure really why that is is it in a in an era where everything's digital and you're not maybe so much tied uh, to the past everything's more immediate you can reinvent yourself maybe like never before yeah i think that's definitely true and i don't know i think also for drake part of it is like a slow reinvention i guess because he's just been ubiquitous the entire time so there's not really like the I'm going to go away for two years and come back with this bold new vision. It's just like, I'm going to like tweak the Drake sound and do the 90s R&B sampling with a little bounce mix in it this time, which is nice for what. So I think he's then a sort of like overtime inched away from the take care R&B version of himself to be this new person. But, you know, like Hotline Blink's kind of in a middle ground between 90s R&B Drake and sort of these newer sounds he's incorporating now. So he just like been able to... I guess it was like in a subtle way. So there's never really a time to be like reassessing who Drake is. Right. He's just been here the entire time, popular the entire time. Um, and we're probably going to keep streaming him indefinitely. I don't know if he can be stopped. <laughs> As part of that, you know, constant reinvention, constant shuffling, new hits, new moves. Interesting that, that Drake's sort of media profile has vanished. I mean, this is a guy who does not really perform on award, on award shows or TV shows, does not do interviews, does not do television interviews in a lot of way. Do you do you think that sort of goes hand in hand with, I guess, this sort of chameleon of, you know, Drake can be anything because we, we have no real way to pin him down except for the music or what the music is in the moment? Yeah, I mean, that does, I hadn't thought about that. That definitely could be true, though. And it's also interesting because, like, his speaking voice is very different from his rap voice. So maybe that may be part of why he... Like once the version of Drake you always see and hear is like this performer version of him versus like whoever he is like you know day to day. I mean that might be part of it I guess. And I also just I don't know I feel like he clearly has a very like careful team about like the image he's gonna project. Um, we think about something as elaborate as the God's Plan video where he gave away a million dollars in Miami. Um, it's just clear that they're like very particular. They're getting more and more particular about the version of Drake they want to be like dismissing to the public. Um, and I probably, I mean, that probably helps him in terms of making sure that whenever Drake does something, it's going to be a big deal because it's not going to be all that often, I guess. Yeah. It's really something we've seen uh, ramp up in the past, probably two, three years. I mean, uh, even with this last album cycle, we've seen Taylor Swift, you know, not, not sort of break that mold. Um, she hasn't done an interview off reputation or anything. So maybe there's something mysterious there. Certainly Beyonce, probably the biggest example of somebody who, you know, people used to always sort of knock Beyonce for her interviews. They weren't that good. She's not as smart as she comes across. And now she's made it where she doesn't speak. But, you know, Beyonce could go stand in the middle of, you know, a Walmart and that Walmart would be the littest place on earth, not have to do anything. But, you know, oh, my God, there she is. So right, may, right, maybe right. Drake's, you know, sort of wised up to that and 
you know, you don't need to do all this stuff when you're still streaming and selling and going crazy like that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, Kanye West returned to Twitter in the last week has already proven that, like, talking a lot is probably not going to do you any favors in a lot of cases in pop music, so... Yeah, Kanye's got to uh, deliver now because he's, woo, he set the bar so high. <laughs> yeah, he's going to have like an album every week, he claims, for like four or five weeks. I have serious doubts. Uh, kind of talking about Kanye, you know, one thing that you noticed or, or sort of talked about it in the piece about Kanye versus Drake, it seems like it'd be impossible for Kanye to uh, outdo the numbers that Drake has done. Do you think... I'm curious. I'm thinking. Do you think Kanye's goal is different? Because I think, I think they're still even bigger than the number ones or, 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 or streaming numbers. I think there's the hugest prize in hip hop. The most elusive prize in hip hop is still that Grammy for album of the year. I mean, you can right. have you can have number ones. You can be the best selling. You can have a Pulitzer Prize, but you don't have that Grammy. Do you think that that might be sort of? the next big race, you know, especially for, for our, these legacy artists like Kanye. We saw Jay was close to it. We see Kendrick is right. always close to it. Is that possibly a big frontier as well? Yeah, I guess you see that. I feel like they're probably two minds about it, right? Because why would you want to put invest so much stock in this organization that's like ignored all the great artists produced by this genre for decades, but then still everybody gets super caught up in what's going to happen with the album of the year every year. So I feel like Fans are definitely have two minds about it, and it seems like artists are as well. I remember Kanye at one point during his last uh, Twitter rant era talking about how like Young Thug and Future had never been nominated and how bad that was. So I mean, I think he definitely he's also clearly a guy like obsessed with prestige. So I think he definitely is going to be a person who wants that to happen for himself at some point. But he's, he'd also want it to happen on his own terms, you know. So I can't really see him doing like. I don't even know what it would be like a, a, a Kanye acoustic covers with like famous old celebrities. <laughs> like I don't think Kanye's <laughs> gonna do a Grammy bait album exactly, um, but I do think it's something he wants. Well, to put a uh, sports analogy uh, to Drake, since we're talking to someone from the ring, right? In some ways, it's almost like uh, he's he's a, he's a pitcher who's figured out his craft and now uh, pitches more than throws. You know, deeper into his career, he's kind of figured out uh, what works for him, marketing wise, music wise. Uh, maybe that's kind of where he is uh, at this point. Yeah, no, he's definitely like honed a variety of different pitches I guess in styles because I think I said this in the Drake Monopoly story but it's kind of like you have the uh, sort of mopey millennial old school Drake which I might classify as Aubrey <laughs> and then you have this sort of braggadocio like club music Drake and he's like figured out ways to expand on both those at the same time and sort of tweak them in different ways so you're always going to have songs that appeal to like both guys and girls, like people from different backgrounds. He's just really good at finding multiple hits at the same time that are going to tap into different audiences for sure. And one of the biggest audiences he's captured, I know, is is that fine art of like the Instagram caption lyric. <laughs> like, like you know, the, I mean, I, I can't even, well, obviously start from the bottom, probably the best example in his catalog. We talked about YOLO, the line from God's Plan that, you know, I only love my bed and my mama. I mean, that's a whole other currency, you know, that, that he's mastered as well. It's just... Yeah, yeah, one of my favorite Instagram accounts is actually Drake on Cake, and it's just all these really ornate cakes with Drake lyrics on them. <laughs> Drake on and Cake. I, I gotta yeah, check that out. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> but it just shows, like, A, uh, his lyrics are iconic, but also they're short enough and to fit on, like, a small, like, strawberry shortcake, basically. So he's, like, figured out the perfect unit, the perfect unit for the internet age, basically. So, uh, in terms of going forward, in terms of Drake, 
because one thing uh, we've noticed, and, and you've noticed as well in the past 16 months, you know, a lot of artists who felt sort of infallible have fallen, whether it's mm-hmm. Justin, whether it's Taylor, whether it's Gaga, whether it's Katy Perry. And I know those are all pop acts, and, you know, you could argue Drake's a pop act as well, but it's got a different touch to him. Do you, what do you foresee as, you know, how long can Drake keep this up? Do you have any indication? Do you think, is there is there any factor out there, anything that's going to make Drake go away? Is he just going to get too old? Is he just going to get, you know, sort of uh, oversaturated, too many hits at once, too many albums at once? I mean, an album every year, you know, that's, that's a lot to process. Is he going to burn out creatively? I mean, I know it's sort of hard to crystal ball all these things, but is there anything on the horizon that makes you think, okay, if this happens, this would be the end of Drake? Or the beginning right. of the end of Drake. Um, I mean, I kind of thought these would be the beginning of the end because that album felt like sort of like a a very meandering version of "Take Care, Old School Drake." But I was completely wrong. So <laughs> I'll preface that preface my next statement with the fact that I already missed this prediction once. But <laughs> um, I think I could either see him a sort of stepping away from the game, sort of like he at one point was saying he's going to retire at thirty to pursue acting. That didn't happen, but you know. I could see him trying to do something like that, or I could see him sort of like wanting to prove he can do like a Kanye type left turn or a Kendrick type left turn and just be like, I'm going to do something like totally out of left field just to prove I can do it, and that going really, really sideways. So I could either see him just quitting while he's ahead or just like wanting to prove, I think either way, kind of talking about it, if him trying to prove his greatness or his artistry in some way and maybe it not working out the way he wants to because he's been very skilled at, I guess, like making all these hits, but he doesn't necessarily have like a magnum opus or that kind of thing. So I think if he made that sort of like overambitious move, I could imagine something like that. I can imagine an overwrought double Drake double album, basically. <laughs> that yo, that hubris that brings them all down. Yeah, yeah. yeah eventually, comes to everybody. This is great stuff, uh, Victor. I just got to ask you. I've, I've been uh, keeping this in the whole time. I'm from Boston, so uh, Bill Simmons runs the ringer what's it like uh, working for uh originally the boston sports guy bill simmons over at the <laughs> it's been great um i'm actually based in atlanta so i don't get to see bill that often but um it is always exciting when you either get an email from him or a tweet from him or when i'm in la it's kind of funny because when you go into the office and bill walks in it's kind of like people are literally like kind of almost ready to like throw footballs around and stuff yeah. <laughs> So uh, Bill's great, and The Ringer's awesome just because I get so much flexibility in what I can write and doing, like, I mean, I do sort of, like, more serious stories about streaming and how it's, like, really benefiting superstar artists like Drake to the detriment of smaller acts. But then you can also come at it in a funnier way with, like, this, like, satirical Drake is the new Mark Zuckerberg idea, too. So um, I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, that's what I love about The Ringer. It's one of the places, and, you know, Grantland before, it's sort of the earlier version, that uh, commitment to long-form uh, online journalism. You don't, you don't get that in a lot of places. You guys still do that really well. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's definitely one of the main reasons I'm happy to be there. And the uh, next time you see Bill, tell him to do more mailbags. He doesn't do them as much as he used to. <laughs> All right, for sure. Uh, all right. Thanks so much, Victor. Really appreciate it. All right, no problem. Thanks, guys. God's plan. God's plan. I hold back sometimes I won't. Yeah. I feel good sometimes I don't. Like, no. I finesse down Western Road. Like, yes. 
Victor Lukerson of The Ringer on the Billboard Charby Podcast. Great having uh, Victor on. Uh, yeah, talking about all these different uh, reasons for why Drake uh, might be so big, whether it's uh, once you're already big in the streaming area, you just keep that momentum going. Obviously, his, his versatility, mixing uh, different sounds. Uh, yeah, I think part of it, too, and we, we talked about this, that, that right place, right time. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm uh, the streaming era and hip hop becoming so big and largely because of Drake, but yeah, similar in some ways. I was thinking to uh, artists who exploded in the '80s when video came along. Madonna, artists like that. It just this new platform comes along, and artists are just so made for it that it all comes together. Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of not to not, not to diss Madonna because I think this is sort of maybe a scholarly sort of point. I, th- I wonder if a lot of people would argue that. You know, video not only even save but transform Madonna's career. If you look at, you know, a lot of people obviously knock Madonna because they don't think she can, you know, sing incredibly well or isn't, you know. I mean, I mean, Madonna is someone who's sold on the leagues of Celine and Mariah and Whitney, and some people might, you know, take issue with that. Where did this instantly turn into a whole dissing of Madonna I didn't, out of nowhere? I didn't want to say it was a diss, but I think, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's a diss, but I'm saying you know it's it's amazing that that Madonna came along and what she was able to do with video right. and to propel herself into those leagues. I mean, I'm not saying that Madonna doesn't deserve what she's gotten because I think I think she's incredibly smart. I think she's incredibly you know savvy at reinventing herself, testing new sounds. But you're saying she's not a pure powerhouse vocalist? No. Well, no one's gonna say that. Right, yeah, I mean, if you if you are gonna say that, right. you sure? But to put to that point, you know, um, I mean, just about the right place at the right time. I mean, if Madonna had tried to come out 10 years sooner. Yeah. I mean, who knows if she would have lasted in the same kind of way. I mean, video was so essential to her success. And you saw a lot of acts who were big in the 70s. I remember that Eagles documentary in 2013 that Don Henley saying suddenly videos came along and and he said, you know, we. The Eagles used to be accused of the word he used loitering on stage. They would just stand there playing their instruments. They didn't know how to act in their solo stuff, or video. So, kind of both sides. There were acts who'd been around that had to transform two videos, and newer acts who came along that just seemed to be made for it. And also, kind of to a point that Victor's made in some of his writing is, you know, maybe maybe one of the real big tragedies of streaming is that a lot of independent artists who don't have those same kind of connections, can't get on the same playlist, don't have that same kind of reach, you know, their careers may be really stifling or, or not, you know, maybe what they would be if it, more access to radio, more label backing, more just sort of machinery behind them and not just all the attention focused on these playlists. And kind of going back to that video era analogy, you know, there are a good number of artists who whose appearance really became a drag 
on their videos. I mean, you can look at some of the the heavier artists, especially like in the R and B world, who you know they wouldn't put a lot of money behind them. They'd switch them out for you know models, you know, to lip sync in their yeah, videos right. and things like that. And some of those artists too, you know, who suffer because people couldn't couldn't see them, couldn't right. they weren't right for that medium. That's why podcasts are great. You don't have to look at us. <laughs> I, I, yeah, if this was a live like YouTube show, I'm sure we would be just in the dust. And uh, speaking of artists who made a huge use of video to elevate their careers, let's uh, take a flashback to the king of it all, Michael Jackson. We are going to flashback to 1983. We're looking back 35 years ago this week. Hard to believe it's been 35 years since Beat It was the number one song in America. I was in third grade at the time. Were you were you up there when your little, you know, red sequin jacket trying to do trying to do the high kicks and spinning around and you know, being MJ? I was I was in the play Mary Poppins third grade. So I remember about that year. That is the most Gary thing I've probably heard in my whole life. All the other kids are trying to moonwalk and all the other kids are trying to, you know, hee hee. And there's Gary trying to sing a spoonful of sugar. Yeah, we sang that one. Uh, and the, the duet uh, was Michael Banks. So uh, we had uh, the duet of uh, uh, Michael and Jane, The Perfect Nanny. That was our big, was our, big uh, our big performance. I'm sure you got a Tony off it. Not a chart hit. All right. But speaking of chart hits, of course, Beat It, number one back in 1983. And... One of the sort of the fun facts about this song, because obviously a number one hit, Grammy award winning song, one of Michael Jackson's best known songs. Fun fact and sort of a pet peeve of mine, sort of an almost was, is uh, maybe maybe chart geeks or Michael Jackson fans will know the song missed out on replacing Billie Jean at number one by a single week. Right. Uh, Billie Jean had had seven weeks at number one. Come on, Eileen, one of the big one-hit wonders out of nowhere of the 80s, comes in for a week and then beat it, knocks it out the following week. So especially given that Drake has replaced himself at number one recently, uh, wanted to look back at a few close calls of some other artists who came this close to replacing themselves at number one, but somebody, something just got in the way. Uh, So, of course, as we just mentioned, Billie Jean and Beat It being one of the all-time examples and for someone as iconic as Michael Jackson you just feel like that would have been so deserving especially with the two number one hits from the Thriller album right Um, but a few others we're going to harken back uh, when we talked earlier in the podcast when Gary brought up Mariah Carey she also um, as Gary really detailed fell sort of victim to that same situation Fantasy was number one eight weeks Whitney Houston debuts Exhale Shoop Shoop holds on for a week and the next week Mariah able to knock Whitney out uh, and of course the week that Whitney debuted at number one Fantasy had dropped to number two so really if Exhale had not been there Fantasy would have remained number one right. and One Sweet Day would have taken the reins from that so Mariah coming this close this this close again with somebody as many as many number ones as Mariah's had in such back-to-back capacity, you think she could have done it as well, uh, came very, very close. Well, they sang When You Believe together three years later, so uh, all was forgiven, seems like. <laughs> yeah, no hard feelings in, uh, in that studio. Uh, a few others we can run through really quickly. Um, this one actually had to dig a little bit in the archives. Uh, not quite as a performer, but as a songwriter. Carol King almost knocked herself out of number one as a songwriter 
she had had a number one hit for five weeks with her own song It's Too Late uh, double sided single with I Feel the Earth Move from her Tapestry album that gets knocked out of number one by the Raiders Indian Reservation alright and the week after that uh, knocked out by You've Got a Friend as done by James Taylor which of course is written by Carol King right um, some of the other big acts in Hot 100 history recently Rihanna came within a week of doing it herself uh, in late 2010 What's My Name from her loud album had hit number one had jumped up to the top of the chart the next week uh, a song that had already been number one Like a G6 by Far East Movement goes back to number one and then the week after that uh, the single Only Girl hits number one so if What's My Name could have held on for another week if Only Girl could have gotten there a week sooner Rihanna also would have replaced herself at number one and a few acts uh, those are most of the acts that I saw that were one week apart uh, a few others that have been two weeks from the mark uh, go back to the the all time kings on the Hot 100 the Beatles two weeks in between the songs Help and Yesterday back in 1965 and particularly you know that's an era where there were a lot of high turnovers so the fact that they came that close you know in an era where a lot of songs were hitting number one at rapid pace is, is pretty impressive at least the Beatles uh, can fall back on uh, they're the only act ever to go back to back to back at number one uh, in 1964 we we're talking about that on the podcast uh, recently with I want to hold your hand she loves you and can't buy me love so uh, yeah, if they almost did it again that just again shows the, the levels they were at right, another massive group uh, in their heyday also coming two weeks shy the Bee Gees when Saturday Night Fever was all the rage, they had Staying Alive at the number one spot at the top of 1978 uh, and knocked out by, of course, their own brother, Andy Gibb. Right. Love is thicker than water. Knocks them out for two weeks out of the number one spot and his three brothers return the favor in two weeks by knocking him out of number one with the song Night Fever. So a two-week gap between number ones for the Bee Gees now, technically, one of the brothers does get a nice mention, uh, Barry Gibb, who actually co-wrote Love is Thicker Than Water, uh, also writer on Night Fever and Staying Alive. So that's three number ones in a row for Barry Gibb. And actually, the song that knocks out Night Fever, also from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, uh, not a Bee Gees cut, though. Yvonne Elliman coming in that number one spot with her big hit, If I Can't Have You. So really, you know, the early part of 1978, and really, you know, that was that was Gibbs Paradise. Yeah, all, all the, yeah there's been the, these certain eras in, in Hot 100 history that have just been uh, so uh, owned by certain acts, the Beatles in the 60s, the Bee Gees late 70s, you could say Michael Jackson in the 80s, uh, Drake nowadays, Bieber a couple years ago, every once in a while. And a couple others who have been two weeks apart, uh, Donna Summer, 1979, the songs Hot Stuff and Bad Girls, interrupted by Ring My Bell by Anita Ward, and a couple recent examples just in the past decade. We mentioned Rihanna. Uh, How about Justin Timberlake? People may not remember in 2006, he was on a hot streak. Sexy Back had been number one for seven weeks, uh, replaced for two weeks by Moneymaker by Ludacris and Pharrell. Yeah. And then knocked out by JT's My Love. So JT, with you know, within two weeks of replacing himself at number one, goes to show how big he was at the time. And how about we end it on the appropriate note of Drake. Drake back in 2016 featured on Rihanna's work. 
That was a nine-week number one in 2016. Knocked out for a pair of weeks by designers Panda. Another sort of, you know, out-of-nowhere viral hit that I don't think many people would have predicted to be a number one when it first came out. He was the Dexy's Midnight Runners of his time. He <laughs> Designer is Dexy's Midnight Runners, and Panda knocked out by one dance. Yeah, so... Uh, that all comes back to Drake in the end. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. 13 acts have uh, directly succeeded themselves at number one on the Hot 100, Drake uh, being the 13th. But, uh, yeah, I didn't realize that the list might be uh, a lot greater if not for some of these acts that just snuck in something in between. Yeah, you know, goes to show some of these acts, you know, you can plan and, and, and market and strategize and all it takes is that, that one hit out of nowhere that can, uh, can mess it all up. Even for the all-time greats, they can't have it all. Yeah. All right. So that's this week's uh, Billboard Chart Beat podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, probably talking if we didn't talk enough Drake uh, this week. I'm sure there'll be more Drake next week. And uh, again, uh, we have that new Chart Beat podcast hotline. Uh, please call us. We want to hear from you. We want to answer your chart questions. Uh, we want uh, you to be on the Chart Beat podcast with us uh, for our big hundredth episode coming up. Uh, the number two one two four nine three forty two one four zero two one. So two one two four nine three four zero. Two one, uh, give us a call and uh, we'll put some good stuff on the Charpy podcast coming up. Yeah, I think we should close Trevor with one of the biggest hits of nineteen eighty three for everyone who came to. I think it was two performances of Mary Poppins that I was in. There's a daytime one and then the big nighttime performance. We got to play a Mary Poppins song. So we're gonna have who Julie Andrews close us out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> After all this Drake, of course, of course we end with Julie Andrews. But what else? Uh, <laughs> Shall we begin? It is a game, isn't it, Mary Poppins? Well, it depends on your point of view. You see, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap! The job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down the medicine go down medicine go down just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 